From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Brian Mullady. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Thursday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Dominican Father Brian Milady is in the house. If you've got a question for Father, grab one of these open phone lines. The number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, your number is 1-205-271-2985. And we will even put you straight to the front of the line at one 205 2712985. And you can always send us an email. That email address is openline at ewtn.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, as he is every Thursday, the aforementioned, Father Brian Mullady. How are you? I'm just fine, thank you. I'm glad to hear that. And uh, I'm sure that one of the great joys of the Dominican life that you have uh, lived for these many decades is being uh, sitting, if you will, at the feet of uh, one of the greatest theologians the Church has ever known in St. Thomas Aquinas. Yes, I have to say, guilty. (laughs) In fact, the part of the reason I entered the Dominican order was because of Thomas Aquinas. I didn't really know any Dominicans personally when I entered. Um, The life fit me fairly well uh, at the time. And uh, so I uh, wholeheartedly embraced it. But my devotion to St. Thomas has grown throughout the years. And what I especially appreciate about him is it's true he was a very learned man, and as you know, his great contribution was to systematize theology because there, as he says at the beginning of the Summa, which was, by the way, a book nobody ever read in school. It was written for the amusement or the help of students, but it was never taught in school at the time, uh, was that uh, there were so many strange questions that were asked. They were asked in a haphazard manner. There was very little system addicts presentation of them, but that's why he wanted to present a systematic presentation of the faith. And people laugh because he says it's for beginners and it's very, it's a difficult book, as you know. And so, but he he meant by a beginner in the Middle Ages was someone who'd already been through the seven liberal arts curriculum and the whole philosophy curriculum. So it presumes a good deal of, well, cultural as well as liberal arts knowledge in addition to the discussions of various philosophers 
concerning various disciplines in philosophy. The wonderful thing about St. Thomas is that he was able to do all this and he didn't aspire to anything except to know the truth, as you know. They several times offered to make him a bishop and he said, no, I don't want that. That's not what I'm here for. And he, he, it's true, his personality was not an outgoing personality. In fact, some people think he suffered from a mild form of dyslexia because he hated crowds and he um, didn't visit the parlor hardly ever. And there were two cardinals that came to visit him and they were highly insulted because he didn't say much. But that was him, you know, that was his way of doing things. You recall that when he entered the religious life and began his philosophy studies and theology studies that he said so little and he was a very large man that they called him the Damox. And his teacher, the great teacher, Albert the Great, said, well, he may be a dumb ox, but his bellow will only be heard around the world because he recognized something in him that was so unusual. And the church, of course, when St. Thomas was alive, some people belonged to his school. He was studied by some. He was actually condemned by others. And there was no such thing as a Thomistic school that everybody adhered to. Even in the order, there was a great disagreement about him. But he finally became sort of like a standard for Catholic doctrine in the Council of Trent because his the summa was so useful in helping to unravel some of the difficulties that were caused by the Protestant Reformation and thought that people just were astonished. There is a story... Um, that they used to reverence the Summa together with the Bible on the altar at the Council of Trent because it was so useful. And when St. Ignatius founded the Jesuits, though, of course, he didn't say, well, you have to slavishly follow St. Thomas, but he believed St. Thomas should be the takeoff point for all theological education. And he actually said that to the Jesuits because he is respected the tradition of seeking to, well, join Athens and Jerusalem or faith and reason so much. Even John Paul II was highly influenced, as you know. He studied with us at the Angelicum, uh, the Dominican University in Rome. He was highly, highly influenced by St. Thomas. And his encyclical faith and reason shows that influence greatly. When the church sought to recover uh, an intellectual tradition that was rigorous in the 19th century after the Enlightenment, St. Thomas is kind of fallen out of use. And yet, that's what they went back to. Leo XIII, as you know, was very, very uh, solicitous to encourage the study of the thought of Thomas Aquinas. Of course, like all the great thinkers, there's been difficulties concerning him because some people want to just take off from what he said, a few things he said and develop their own ideas. Others, they're supposed to talk of what they call augmentum tome. In other words, to say what he 
thought, period. Some people think that's too slavish. Uh, um, I don't, myself, because once you understand what he thought, then you can move on from that. But it has to always be couched in what the true interpretation of the his ideas are. And another thing that people don't know much about is that uh, the Summa was just a small little work of his. His present Omnia Opera, all complete works, comprise seven folio volumes in tiny print and triple columns that they put together to correspond to the... There was a Jesuit, Father Buza, who tried to uh, put the whole Summa in the computer, and he began in 1940 and then cross-referenced things. Uh, St. Thomas was, of course, of the high nobility. His mother, the uh, Dame Theodora, was related to the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. But he never, again, wanted to push that. <clears throat> the family, especially Dame Theodora, didn't like him joining the Dominicans because we didn't own property and we were not famous uh, um, or wealthy or great landowners. And she wouldn't have minded if he became the abbot of Monte Cassino, a great abbey in, in, in uh, Italy. But he didn't want that. Even though he'd been raised by the Benedictines uh, as an oblate, as a boy, and had great respect for them, he chose an order that was allowed to poverty because all he wanted to do was think about God. So it, it, it's a fitting epitaph the motto they put after him, where in Naples he had a vision of our Lord on the cross. And Christ said to him, what reward can I give you, St. Thomas, for all that you've written about me? And he just simply answered, no nisi te domine, nothing but you, O Lord. So Saturday we celebrate his feast and I think it's important for us to realize he's the patron of Catholic education. But he's a loving patron who deeply loved God and his neighbor and also the truth. And ironically became more famous than she could have ever imagined. Oh, that's right. That's right. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Wide open phone lines. Grab one of these lines at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. A new book hot off the presses from EWTN Publishing for June, Father Benedict Answers Your Questions by Father Benedict Rochelle. Beloved spiritual master and psychologist, Father Benedict Groeschel tackles an array of personal questions in his refreshing, frank, conversational way. 
addressing everything from hot-button topics in the church to ways to explain what Catholics believe to advice on increasing your devotion to our Eucharistic Lord. Father Benedict talks about divorce, remarriage, and same-sex attractions, uh, what to do when you're at your wit's end over family discord, how you can help restore reverence and awe at Mass, and much, much more. Father Benedict answers your questions by Father Benedict Groeschel. It's a new book from EWTN Publishing, available at EWTNRC.com. That's by Catholic. Shop EWTNRC.com. Father Benedict answers your questions from Father Benedict Rochelle from EWTN Publishing for the month of June. Um, 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Daniel writes in, I know someone who is struggling with his faith in God. He talks about injustices and how destinies are not allocated on merit or equity. To one who has, more will be given. To one who has not, even that will be taken away. He adds, how can you justify a good God's existence when people, uh, when faithful people suffer so much? And uh, Daniel wants to know how he can best help his friend. Well, of course, this problem is the problem of Job. Uh, why do the good suffer? And Job, as you know, is described as a just person. And yet he is allowed to be tempted by Satan and also to suffer. Uh, first of all, the thing about to those who have more will be given, it doesn't refer to success here on earth. It refers to heaven. So it's possible for a person to have very little things that we would be considered success in earthly terms but to have, uh, by their humility, experienced union with the kingdom. And remember, in Catholic doctrine, merit is determined by how much you love God and your neighbor. So you might have, a, if you want to put it this way, it's a kind of homey way to put it, but if you, they have huge mansions in heaven, but it's not based on any kind of earthly meritocracy. Uh, that's left for earthly, uh, you know, um, jobs and earthly goods. In heaven, the meritocracy has to do with not how much you have, but with what you've been and how you are. And God is the first one that always gives the merit. Remember, we we have no proportion, we have no uh, equivalence of our works with God's grace like we do on earth with human works, in human jobs. It's not a meritocracy again. What we do is we have a kind of proportionate equality where each one of us in the works by which we grow, uh, in the final analysis, that would be the works of heaven, the meritorious of heaven, there's uh, two people at work the Holy Spirit that constantly inspires us, and then us. Now, we do participate, but our participation is tiny and little, whereas the Holy Spirit is huge. And so you'll have statements made, like in the Mass, in crowning, concerning the saints or the martyrs, 
in crowning their merits, you crown your own gifts. Because the ability to merit in that case is all based on God giving us that ability. So none of us can boast before the Lord. St. Augustine says, Coram Deo nulliactantia est. In the presence of God there is no boasting. On the other hand, he does will good to everybody, but oftentimes it's not the good we would want, and it's not an earthly good that you earn. Instead, it's a heavenly good that you receive as a gift because you've allowed God to change you to be like him. And I think we've all seen people, Father, as as further evidence of what you're saying, that there are people who have um, maybe not understood the concept completely, but have yielded their will to God's will, and during great times of suffering, have been people of amazing joy. Absolutely, absolutely. And of course... um, you know, yielding our will to God's will. Sometimes we don't have a choice when it comes to suffering. So uh, you may as well just give in <laughs> because no matter how much you don't like this and feel you don't deserve it, it's there. Well, that could so be a blessing you... for some of us who are not inclined to do that very easily. <laughs> well, right. And, and, and so what do you do? I mean, uh, well, you try to see what could God have planned for me in this and uh, remember, his ways are not our ways. And uh, I, I don't mean me to take extreme examples like the martyrdom or something. But sometimes you lose a job or sometimes you are in a, a community and you want to be there and you get transferred or uh, things like that. And you think, well, gee, I don't deserve this. But who of us deserves what we're at to begin with? And secondly, like I say, If you sit back and look at it, you might think, well, I don't see the world the way God does. But God has something good in mind for me because he always brings good out of evil. So what could it be? Now, you may never know in this life. Sometimes you do know. Sometimes you look back on your life a few years later and you say, well, um, you know, God knew what he was doing and I didn't. Because had I stayed in that situation... I might have lost my soul, but I wouldn't have chosen to change it. But God chose to change it for me. And at the time, it seems terribly unjust. And you again, you say, well, I don't merit this. Well, fine. But there's always something God has in store, even if it's just growth and love in heaven that is uh, the reason these things happen. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Grab one of these open phone lines at 833-288-3986. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. If you're outside of the United States and Canada, we'd love to hear from you. That number is 1-205-271-2985. Um, Justin writes in, he says, I hear every day that God loves you. One day I heard if you're in mortal sin, he will flee from you. How can that be if he loves you so much? Well, I don't know who told you God would flee from you. God never flees from anyone. I'd love to know what that source of that quote was. He flees from you. We flee from him. 
Uh, God is always loving and always good, but it has to be on his terms. Uh, after all, he is the creator. And so if we feel God is far from us in mortal sin, it's not that he has withdrawn in any sense his mercy from us, but we don't allow his mercy to enter into our souls. So it's we who have to change, and that's called confession of metanoia, conversion of heart. But God doesn't will even anyone to go to hell in the sense that he positively destines them to that. He wills us a free will to choose our destiny. And in, our, in a sense, our whole life is an imitation of Satan's original choice, which is self or God. Satan chose self. So God says, fine, you want yourself? Have yourself for all eternity, uh, which is hell. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but, uh, and of course, angels don't, can't repent. I mean, their so, will is so strong, and their pilgrimage on life has ended in their first choice. Whereas we, because we're so weak in our intelligence and our wills, we're such lesser creatures, we can go back and forth for our whole lives. So our actual perseverance or pilgrim way ends with death. But we have all of our lives to work this out. But uh, don't, don't uh, I, I don't know who told you that, but... Uh, I'd love to know, uh, it might have been a priest or someone just trying to keep you from sinning. <laughs> but I've heard a lot of strange things taught by people recently, too. <laughs> you know, the younger clergy are very well-meaning and they're very good, but sometimes they're not very destructive theology. I heard one recently give a homily who said that in the Eucharist, the bread and wine are annihilated, <laughs> which means every Eucharist is a new creation. No, uh-uh. That's why they call it a change. Then they're not annihilated. The, it, it's true, it's a miraculous change because in other natural changes, um, the matter or the potential is the means by which the new form or the what the thing actually is, is um, accomplished. And then the properties go along with the new form like color and taste and size and shape and all this business, even molecular structure. But in transubstantiation, the properties are the means of the conversion. Because everything about the bread and wine is totally and completely transformed to be Christ's body, blood, soul, and divinity. But they're not annihilated. And I just think this person must have had not a very good class of theology about the meaning of the transubstantiation in the Eucharist. And quickly, Tara writes in, if God is infinite and doesn't change, why is there such a dramatic difference in the stories from the Old Testament versus the stories from the New Testament? Uh, I don't quite understand the question. I think she thinks God's kind of mean in the Old Testament and not so much in the New Testament. So uh, oh, well, If he doesn't change, how do you account for that? Oh, okay. You know, I didn't quite understand what you mean. It doesn't change in either one. <laughs> but... Uh, uh, well, in the Old Testament, since we don't experience have grace, the alienation we have from God is more emphasized. In the New Testament, because of Christ, which is uh, where Christ is a, um, uh, a new relationship 
between God and man in Christ. Uh, and in this relationship, you have one who is the second person of the Trinity who through his human nature fulfills the new law, the presence of the Holy Spirit, then that is expressed, God's same relationship with us is expressed much more in terms of mercy and, and uh, communion of life. 833-288-EWTN. It's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Wide open phone lines. I had to console Father Milady throughout the entire break to keep him from bursting into tears. 833-288-3986. Lee would like to know, what is the church teaching on immigration? How do we balance love of neighbor with following the law? Well, of course we agree with immigration. We just don't agree with the legal immigration. <laughs> I mean, we want people to come here, but we have to have some control over our borders if we're going to be a country. And uh, unfortunately, um, whatever you may think about it, and it's up to you, I have no... I realize there's a lot of political difficulties in this, and I can see, in a sense, both sides in a way. But um, the the whole concept of having no borders is what people today, unfortunately, want. And they, they want like a one-world order with one-world government, and it just isn't a good idea. The world's too big. There are too many people. That's why we have countries. Just like our country is having so much difficulty dealing with 330 million people, what if we had the whole world as one government? They'd, people would like that. It's the height of totalitarianism, but people would like it. But who, who would get any kind of personal attention with such a huge thing? You, you, nobody can control a huge thing like that. So um, we're not against immigration. Uh, people have been doing it for the centuries and centuries and centuries, and the church has said nothing about it. But once boundaries got established and things like that, people recognized that they needed to have some legitimate control over what happened in their country that wasn't the same as maybe happened in another country. Well, that led to the establishment of countries and uh, that itself led to different law systems. And so in order for a person in one to be a part of another, whatever the law asks of them, provided it's not unreasonable, uh, they have to conform to. So I, I, I don't uh, quite understand why Everybody thinks that just because a person walks across a border, that therefore they have a right to be in another country. Um, not as a resident, they don't. So as a tourist, that may be different, or a student visa or something like that. But we've what we've done, therefore, is done away with what the Catholic principles of subsidiarity which is that it's not part of the higher community 
to subsume into it the lower community. It's the point of the higher community's existence to encourage the lower community, in this case the states, to do their responsibility in being sure that we have an ordered immigration policy where we can actually take care of the people that come here. They actually have jobs um, so that they're not left at sea to starve or something like that. Uh, they have some rudimentary knowledge of the language. Not that we couldn't have other languages too, but it's very um, inhuman to just suggest that everybody who wants to can walk across and enter the United States when people that are terrorists are doing it. So we have to have some ability to control our borders. Now, whether it's the one people want, that's, that's a matter of debate. But there has to be some uh, ability to control our borders. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Still two open phone lines at 833-288-3986. Joe is a first-time caller in Metairie, Louisiana, listening at EWTN.com. Joe, you are on with Father Brian Milady. Good afternoon, Father. Hi. Uh, my question for you is, um, prior to ascending into heaven, Jesus told the apostles he would send the Holy Spirit in his place. And given that both Jesus and Mary have physical human bodies, are, are either of them ever in our presence here on earth, or is that limited to communication, through prayer, and I guess the Holy Spirit can, and God could be in our presence here? But is that possible for Jesus and Mary? You mean now? Yes, now. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, no. Uh, their bodily presence is ended. Now, of course, Christ is bodily present, but under the form of bread and wine in the Holy Eucharist. So, um, in that sense, he's still present with us physically. But as regards his body in heaven, since it's pretty present here on earth, the same body in the Blessed Sacrament, there's no need for his body to become present here again on earth. Also, with regard to Our Lady, you know, we have apparitions of her, but these are apparitions. There's no reason for a heavenly creature to, you know, to come back to earth in the physical body. Because what, what good would it do, number one? She's already uh, received her final reward. And as to the Holy Spirit's presence, well, that's Pentecost. You know, Christ sends the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, and the Spirit is with his church. And that's why you see in the Acts of the Apostles, where it more or less begins with Pentecost, the spread of the Holy Spirit's action throughout the whole of the ancient world in the foundation of various churches. Back today, we're celebrating Titus and Timothy, who were very much involved in Paul's ability to found churches. But that was the Holy Spirit's action. So, no, the, Christ comes back in his physical body in the sense that he comes back in the Eucharist, but not the one with the, that's in heaven in the sense of its dimensions. Now, the body from heaven does become present on the altar, but under the dimensions of bread and wine. There's a reason for that, because had Christ just become present in his body as it exists in heaven, 
millions of people couldn't become partakers in it. But because of transubstantiation, which is a marvelous miracle on the part of God, each of us can commune with the same body and we can make the loving obedience of Christ in that body our own. So the way I always like to put it is there aren't uh, 50 million bodies of Christ on earth, wherever the consecrated host is. There's one body of Christ that exists in heaven, but it's equally present in 50 million different places wherever there's a consecrated host because of the miracle of transubstantiation so that we might too become partakers of his divine nature through his human nature. God bless you, Joe. Thanks so much for the phone call today. Next stop for us is the great state of New Jersey. Tom is another first-time caller. He's listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Tom, you're on with Father Brian Milady. Hi, Father Brian. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, okay. Real quick, um, my, my journey's taken me through some evangelical, non-denominational churches, and and God's chosen to bring me back to my Catholic faith. Uh, the priesthood, I'm curious about Melchizedek. You know, they deny this, this priesthood in these other denominations, some of them, and it caused me to start reading. So I read about Aaron and 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 him being the water of priests, but I don't understand Melchizedek, who, or, or that whole royal priesthood. Could you help me? I'll try. Uh, Melchizedek is not a Jew, and he's not of the Aaronic priesthood. So whatever applies to the Aaronic priesthood does not apply to him. St. Paul uses him as a type of Christ, because of who he is. Uh, first of all, he has no beginning or end, and no family, no nothing, so he's like the person of the word in heaven. Uh, he uh, has Abraham pays tithes to him, so that means that the greatest of the patriarchs recognizes his authority. His name means king of peace, and it's Christ that brings peace to us by the offering of the Holy Eucharist. And he has a very peculiar sacrifice, which is the sacrifice of bread and wine, which is very much connected to the Holy Eucharist as we know it. So the fact of Melchizedek is um, the attempt to demonstrate that Christ's priesthood, though it does involve priest and victim, is, is a significant different character than the Aaronic priesthood. And also, the Aaronic priesthood, people succeeded to it by birth. That's not true in the priesthood of Melchizedek, and it's certainly not true in Christ's priesthood. So that's, that's the difference. And the reason the others don't accept it is, I don't know for certain, but I would imagine that they only accept the Aaronic priesthood and the sacrifices of the Old Testament as performed in the temple as being real sacrifices. Now, of course, Christ does fulfill those too. But in this sense, that his priesthood is greater than the Aaronic priesthood. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. A couple of open lines at 833 833- 
288-3986. Great question from Abigail. She's a first-time caller in the great state of North Carolina watching us on YouTube today. Abigail, you are on with Father Brian. Hi, Father. Thank you for taking my call. Um, okay. I was just wondering, <laughs> thank you, if I can get your opinion about what Pope Francis said yesterday about homosexuality isn't criminal but a sin. Um, I've been hearing online and a lot of Catholics have been going back and forth about how the Catechism doesn't say homosexuality is a sin, but that it's disordered. But um, it, it is a sin, correct? I just wanted your opinion on that. <laughs> oh, I'm pretty sure the Catechism says it's a sin. Pope Francis says it's a sin. Um, I know someone called me about this talk, and I wasn't aware it had occurred. And I said, oh, let me go look it up. So I read through the whole thing, and I thought, well, he obviously, he's, he's very liberal politically, as you know. And so he doesn't want uh, homosexuality to be condemned as a crime in the civil order. Now, that's something you could debate, certainly. But some people feel that when we condemn it as a crime in the civil order, it led to needless suffering because some people, as you know, it seems they say they are born with this tendency. Um, and so that would be basically to say, well, you're a criminal just because you're born with this tendency, not because you've done any acts according to it. The catechism itself distinguishes between the tendency, which some people, it seems, have from birth. Not everybody, I don't think, that says they have it. But some people may have it from birth, and the actual acts by which it's performed. And they're very clear that, you know, there's nothing sinful itself in the sense of personal sin about the tendency. But all acts according to this tendency are sinful. So the church, even in um, everyday life, has recommended uh, organizations for homosexuals who have the tendency to have to preserve chastity just as much as a heterosexual person does before marriage. And that's the only way in which they can experience happiness and fulfillment. Not uh, other groups, there is another Catholic group that maintains that you could be an active homosexual and that we wouldn't agree with that. So, uh, as far as I can tell, the remarks Pope Francis made were basically of a political nature, and he just doesn't want it condemned by the civil law. Uh, next up is Barb in the great state of Illinois. She is listening today on WSFI Radio in the northern Chicago area. Barb, you're on with Father Brian Milady. Hi, Father. Um, I have a question. First, I'll ask you point blank. With Noah's Ark, the story as we, as I knew it, um, a symbolism, or was it actual? Well, you know, they think they found it. <laughs> the archaeologists think they found it. So um, I would say it is a historical event. Its use that's made in the Bible, though, is more of a symbolic nature. 
first of all, the man refuses to repent until it's too late, in a way. And uh, secondly, that Noah follows the command of God and makes the ark, so he's saved. Thirdly, that uh, God has promised never again to destroy the world by water. And uh, fourthly, it's also a symbol for the church, you know, a wash in the seas of the turmoils of this world. And the one uh, saving grace is having the ark of the Holy Mother of the Church. And then you remember when the land finally dried, they performed a sacrifice to God. So it demonstrates their um, uh, willingness to follow the will of God in this. So it seems it is based on a real event. Now, whether it, the whole world was destroyed by it, but it certainly was quite a flood, apparently. <laughs> and uh, Noah was the only person that had sense enough to build a ship that would uh, survive the flood. As of the animals, well, it doesn't have to be all the animals, but some animals were saved uh, for the sake of the replanting of the area destroyed by the flood. Be sure to check out Blessed to Play Sunday afternoon, 4.30 p.m. Eastern Time. This week's guest is Danielle Breen, who competed as a gymnast for the University of Nebraska Cornhuskers. Host Ron Meyer talks with Danielle about her career as a consistent contributor to her team and why faith is a staple in her life. That's Blessed to Play this Sunday afternoon, 4.30 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on EWTN Radio. Still time to squeeze in a call or two at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Ash writes in, If Jesus died for our sins, I'm confused as to why we are still born into original sin. Well, because they have to be applied to us. The passion has to be applied to us. And that application is baptism in which we enter into Christ's cross. Before the crucifixion of Christ, there was no means to be freed from original sin. Now there is. And so uh, in order for us to participate in that, we have to experience baptism. But for those who haven't experienced baptism yet, uh, they're still in original sin. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Um, Violet would like you, Father Milady, to explain to her predestination. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> what, in one minute on the radio? <laughs> I'll give you two. <laughs> well, the, the idea is... In God's foreknowledge, he wills us all to go to heaven. He gives us all the ability to go to heaven, but he also, because he created us in free will, has as a part of that ability choosing to do that. And he knows there are some people that won't do it. Now, Protestants, some Protestants believe that he positively basically kept you from choosing it. In other words, he positively willed for you to go to hell. Catholics believe that he doesn't interfere with your freedom, but he does know who's going to do this and who isn't, and that's a part of his will. 
so as to what they used to call antecedent predestination, which is a fancy way of saying before you're born, what does God destine you to? He destines all to heaven. But with consequent predestination, he knows what you're going to choose, and so that's a part of his will also. Uh, Braden called in from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. He was unable to hang on the line, but he wanted to know, Father, how did the apostles know who Jesus was talking to at the Transfiguration? Oh, I would say it's because of the nature of the conversation, plus the fact that they, as I recall, I could be mistaken about this because you ask it, but as I recall, they uh, saw them too as part of the vision. Um, remember, Jesus shows uh, his inner person through his uh, body, and it does say Peter, he appeared with uh, Moses and Elijah, and of course they also represent the law and the prophets. So they demonstrate that the whole of the Old Testament is ordered to him, and you know the pious tradition is, and I believe this is maybe expressed in one of the gospel passages too, that they were discussing the passion, which would be the big scandal for everyone. It's one of the reasons why Jesus says, tell no one of the vision till the Son of Man is risen from the dead, because they were discussing the passion. Are you up for uh, putting down a superstition? Well, I'll try. Zach writes in, I am doing a novena, which involves burying a statue of St. Joseph upside down. Is this okay to do? Well, the Italians do it all the time. <laughs> I would say that, you know, our religion is a very folksy religion. We're, we're, we're related to human beings, even in the, what would you say, the most ordinary of circumstances. And so you had people that wanted a house, so they built buried medals or whatever to ask the intercession of the saint to help them with this. When the Italians don't get their prayer answered, they're mad at Jesus and they turn him to face the wall. <laughs> I mean, it's it's not it's not the theological, obviously, but we're we're an incarnational religion. We're a sacramental religion. If you look on any any of those things, of course, it's automatically getting you this. That's wrong. But if you look on it as my desire to have the help and the intercession of this person in getting this, I would say you can you can do that. Sure, I I wouldn't, but it's not my religion. <laughs> yeah, but uh, you know, and uh, you know, if you, if you go to a a procession and. In Sicily, they throw throw money at the statue. It's just not my religion. I, <laughs> we have different cultural expressions of Catholicism, and uh, it's not uh, some of them, of course, would border on the on the superstitious. Others, uh, as long as you don't again look at this as automatically producing this, no matter what God thinks. No, it's not the thing. It's, it represents a desire for aid, that sort of thing. Uh, quickly, we'll head to Ron, a first-time caller in Atlanta, Georgia, listening on The Quest. Ron, we've just got a couple minutes left with Father Milady. What's your question today? Okay. I teach seventh-grade boys in confirmation class, 
And I'd be interested from your perspectives, you both probably went through a confirmation class, and what was the most impactful thing that you took away from that class? Because obviously you two guys have your act together, at least from a church standpoint. You mean I was supposed to remember this? (laughs) (laughs) I went through that class 60 years ago. I I don't recall, uh, but of course I was raised partially in Catholic school. And I was only confirmed after I left Catholic school. So I would say the whole experience was uh, preparatory. The most important thing to emphasize in confirmation is our relationship with the Holy Spirit, the fact that there are seven gifts of the Holy Spirit, and we need help to live an adult faith, especially teenagers do, to get through all the mess of teenagerhood, And that particular sacrament strengthens the gift of fortitude, the gift of courage. And they need that to get through. Whether they listen to you or not, that's another question. But that's what has to be emphasized very much. And if I were doing it, I probably, well, it might be a little advanced for them. But when I used to teach Catholic high school in 11th grade, I'd show the man for all seasons. And, you know, I'd say, look at what this person had to go through. Although I always loved their reaction to Thomas More. The kids are such brats sometimes. I'm sorry. I know that's not a politically correct term, but they'd say, Father, how could he be a saint? He's so intelligent. (laughs) (laughs) I said, well, you don't have to be an idiot to be a saint, you know. (laughs) No, I mean, they they were being funny, but... uh, they, they, they were moved by the whole experience. That's yeah, and I agree with Father 100%. I think that a lot of these kids, especially at that age, they don't think that they're capable of, of doing what is required of them to live the Catholic faith, but the Holy Spirit will help them make it happen. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? May the blessing of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, descend on you. I remain with you forever. Amen. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father Brian Milady, our producer, Michael McCall, call screener, Matt Kubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in. Back at it tomorrow with Colin Donovan. Until then, God bless.